with the content of Revelation being Jesus Christ, is also the things that must soon take place. Now this is where it starts to get real confusing. What things are these? Things that must soon take place. Well, how soon is soon? <laughs> it's like, how often is often? Kind of depends on your perspective. Is soon a couple hours? That's pretty soon. Um, a couple days? Okay, so 70 AD. So oh, actually, we're probably, probably even after the temple has, has been destroyed at this point. Although it could be before that. Um, is it a couple hundred years? Thousand? How soon is soon? I mean, for God, I mean, a thousand years is pretty soon, right? A thousand years is like a day. For us, that's pretty far away. I mean, what, what was happening a thousand years ago in the year 1021? What was the world like then? Yeah, right. We're talking about Mongols and like this is the not even the high point of the Middle Ages yet. So how soon is soon? Um, I want to introduce you to a concept called prophetic perspective. You find this a lot in the Old Testament. But it's also present in the new, especially when Jesus is making predictions, say, of the, the destruction of the temple, uh, or Revelation, speaking of the things that are soon to come. Prophetic perspective speaks of things that will happen within, perhaps, the prophet's own lifetime, um, maybe even sooner than, you know, 20 years down the road, maybe within the next couple of years. Um, next couple of months even. But there's always a bigger horizon. Has anyone ever gone to the Rocky... Has anyone ever driven to the Rocky Mountains in Colorado? A couple of you have? Okay. You know that the first part of Colorado is dead boring. It is so flat, right? And you're like, I thought there's supposed to be mountains in Colorado. And it's just flat. Flatter than Illinois in some places. And you're like, and there's not even trees or cornfields. It's just nothing. But then you come across these shadows out in the horizon. And you see the Rocky Mountains. You're like, ah, oh, we're finally there. How long does it take you to get to the Rocky Mountains after you see them? <laughs> it's like another hour, right? <laughs> like, are we ever going to get there? I see the mountains. So prophetic perspective is kind of like this. The mountains are on the horizon. You see them, but they're way far away. It seems like maybe they're closer than they are, but that's just because of perspective and kind of trick of the eye. As you get closer then, as you pull into Colorado Springs, you start to see the mountains way up close, but then what do you have to do before you get up to those tall mountains? Go through the foothills, up and down. There's a lot of details in there that you don't see when you're out in the middle of flatland Colorado. Prophetic perspective very often will paint that entire scene in a couple of chapters. Sometimes using this very symbolic language like apocaly apocalyptic style. So 
at the same time, it's talking about some of these detailed things that will happen in the near future, but painted against the backdrop of what's going to happen on the last day. So we can offer an interpretation of both. As we're reading through, we, we can say, how does this predict or even tell of the things that are currently happening uh, in that first century context? And then also, how does it paint this picture with the backdrop of the eschatological horizon? Uh, eschatology dealing with the last things, the last day, the judgment of Christ, things like that. Um, from thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. So the last day is always looming on the horizon, but there's also things that will happen soon within John's own lifetime as he's writing this. So we'll take a look at that first century context. Remember one of the keys to understanding Revelation that, that Dr. Franzman points out is um, knowing the historical circumstances of a Jewish man living in towards the end of the first century in the Greco-Roman world. Um, so we'll kind of keep that in mind as well, but we'll talk about the last day and the last times. All right, so those are the things that must soon take place. What things? Well, the Bible often will be very vague and just say, the things. <laughs> um, so we've got to figure out what the things are. Okay. The next verse, I wanted to examine real quickly this word angel because it pops up quite a bit in Revelation. Um, and we have three options for understanding this term, this word angel. Um, this happens in all of Scripture, but in Revelation especially, we have to be careful about making this distinction. What are our three options for angel? Well, the word itself literally just means a messenger. Um, I hope I don't spoil next week's sermon at all, but St. Michael and all angels, angels are simply messengers. Um, the Greek word angelos means one who delivers a message. Um, so your kids can be little angels, not because they're so sweet, but you say, hey, go tell mom to get dinner ready or something like that. The little angel. <laughs> um, angels can be one of three kinds in Revelation and the rest of the Bible. First one's obvious. When we say angel, we usually mean those guys up there, right? The spiritual servants of God, the ministering spirits of God. Um, and we, well, these ones have wings. Do all angels have wings? I guess technically no angels have wings because they're spirits. Um, but they manifest themselves sometimes with wings, as in Isaiah chapter 6. Not all of them do. The ministering spirits. Yeah, Terry. Okay, yeah, so there were some in Sodom and Gomorrah um, who uh, we could maybe think of them as the spiritual messengers of God. Um, some visit Abraham as well, although that might get us into another kind of angel. Before we get to that one, though, 
you can simply say uh, human messengers of God are angels. Sometimes the Bible uses the word angel for pastors or preachers or ministers. Um, so you can go tell all your friends that you have an angel for your pastor. And they're like, wow. Because he he's delivering a message. It's an, an angelos. Um, so human preachers who proclaim the message of God are also considered angels. And so when we get to um, the, the last part of this chapter and the next part of chapter 2, um, there are messages or there's uh, addresses to the angels, uh, the angel, singular, of the church at uh, Ephesus. And that's being directed towards the preacher, the bishop the one who delivers the message of God to the people in that congregation. Uh, so that could be a, a second option, the human servants of God who deliver his message. The third often shows up in the Old Testament in significant revelatory events. And that is the angel of the Lord. This would be, for instance, when Abraham sacrifices his son Isaac, or is about to sacrifice Isaac, and the angel of the Lord stops him. Uh, the angel of the Lord is involved in the Exodus. He is the one who strikes down the firstborn in Egypt. The angel of the Lord also leads um, the Israelites out of slavery. Uh, he is located in the cloud and in the fire. Uh, the angel of the Lord appears to some of the later prophets. Um, sometimes uh, a prophet will, uh, a prophecy will use a different kind of term, like the word of the Lord comes to the prophet so-and-so. Um, uh, one of my professors at the seminary wrote uh, a book on this called Angelomorphic Christology which is a very fancy title to say that anytime in the Old Testament when the angel of the Lord appears, it is the pre-incarnate Son of God. Jesus Christ manifests in a visible fashion to reveal something significant to God's people. And he's given various names in the Old Testament, but it's always the second person of the Son of God. So angel can also refer to the messenger, the one who is entrusted to bring the words of the Father to the world, the one who is in fact called the Word of God by John in his Gospel. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the angel of the Lord uh, and the messenger of God. Again, you can kind of see all three of these working at the same time. Um, when, when I preach, presuming I'm preaching from God's Word, which I strive to do every week, it's not my words, but it's the words of Christ. When I announce to you the absolution, I don't say, I, as your pastor and a pretty fine human being, announce the grace of God to you. I say, as a called and ordained servant of the word, 
and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I am saying to you his words, not my own. So the human messengers of God also speak the message of the messenger of God. Likewise, the angels similarly deliver the message of the messenger. So who is this particular angel? I'm going to go with Jesus on this one. Since he is the one who makes the revelation, gives the revelation, and is the content of the revelation, he is the one who delivers the message to John. You can interpret this to be a human messenger or a spiritual servant of God if you wish, uh, but I'm going to stick on the, the side. This is Jesus Christ coming to John who delivers to him the words that he needs to write. So here's our author again, John. We don't have any indication of which John it is. John, the beloved disciple, John, the apostle, John, the brother of James, John, the son of Zebedee. These are all ways that John is uh, identified elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, John is just now the martyr or the one who bears witness. Uh, John only identifies himself by first name, no family name, no other uh, identifying characteristic, which is quite uncharacteristic of John, the, the beloved disciple. In his gospel that he writes, he does not identify himself by name at all. Instead, he refers to himself in the third person. Have you ever met someone like this? Wasn't there a, like a Seinfeld episode where, yeah, George. George is getting very upset. So stop referring to yourself in the third person. Well, John does this. Um, he calls himself the beloved disciple. Uh, the one who has seen this is bearing witness, he says. Um, but here in Revelation, it's a little different. John, who bore witness to the word of God. Now, that word witness is martyria, um, <clears throat> the, the word we get martyrdom from. And so it's important to realize that martyrdom happens not only when someone dies for the faith, but also when someone simply bears witness. John did not actually die for preaching the word of God like the other disciples did. The only one who did not die a martyr's death. Yet, he is still a martyr because he's bearing witness. Um, so he's bearing witness to the content of the testimony, which is Jesus Christ and what he sees in Christ. Uh, but we also need to realize that Martyrdom itself, witness, testimony, is centered in Jesus Christ. John chapter 8, verses 12 to 20. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. You can't bear witness about yourself. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. 
For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus is the martyr of himself, the one who bears witness concerning himself. But it's not just him speaking about himself. Who is also involved in this testimony? The Father who sent him. So again, you see this progression. Father sending Son who sends the Spirit. In fact, you can almost consider the Spirit to be the content of that witness. Jesus elsewhere in John's Gospel speaks of the Spirit. And what's his job? He will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So the content of the testimony is what the Spirit does. So we have a very richly Trinitarian text here. Uh, you just got to have eyes to see and ears to hear it. All right, we are running real close here to time. So let's uh, do um, two last things. First of all, we have a blessing. The first of seven Beatitudes. Blessings for, number one, those who read aloud. Two, those who hear. Three, those who keep this testimony. Reading aloud. Um, in antiquity, most reading was reading aloud. You don't go into your own room and read quietly. In fact, there's a story that um, St. Augustine discovered uh, his teacher Ambrose reading silently in his study. And he says, what is this sorcery? Because people didn't do that. Uh, that might be a legend, I don't know. But reading was done aloud because, well, there's a high uh, rate of illiteracy, but also um, that's just kind of the, the practice of texts. And with the with, uh, scriptures, faith comes by hearing, not by reading. So the Word of God is living and active. It's meant to be read and spoken and heard and repeated and given back and forth. Um, so those who read aloud, that's one blessing. Those who hear, because faith comes by hearing, not reading aloud. So the best and most blessed place to be is on the receiving end of God's word. That's where the blessing is. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans chapter 10. This implies a giving and a receiving. The way of God is the way of gift, and so his word is given and received. And finally, those who keep, not primarily in the way of obedience, but rather think of it more as keeping close, holding tight. Um, if you ever got a, a great... Um, well, I, I like this, the, the Christmas story, that movie. At the very end, uh, Ralphie's little brother, he gets a Zeppelin for Christmas. Uh, no, spoiler alert. What is he doing at the very end? He's laying in bed and he's hugging that thing tight. You know, kids holding their toys. Uh, that's what it means to keep the words of the prophecy. Um, to hold it close, don't let it go. And finally, the time is near. The kairos. 
That's the word for the appointed time or the fullness of time. Not chronos, chronological. Um, It's not a linear time, but rather this is when everything, this is a very significant time. Everything's kind of coming down to this moment. Uh, So it's a reminder that Revelation is nonlinear. And that's what I had for today. Um, I took a couple of extra minutes, so I'm, next time if you've got some questions, make sure you write them down and bring them back. Um, I'd like to close this with prayer, and then uh, you can be on your way. In the name of Jesus, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you have revealed your will to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. You have delivered his message to us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your church. We give you thanks and praise for revealing to us, even as you conceal from the world, your good and gracious will. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit that allows us to not only decipher the words, but also to see that they point us and refer us to you, who is our blessing. We confess that we often uh, shut our eyes and ears to your word. We ask that you would open them by your word, by your ephetha, that we would continue to hear and to rejoice in the blessings you give to us through this book of Revelation, through your word in general. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. Have a great week.